0: All right, do you guys ever notice that when you're around different people, you have different voices? I don't know if that's relatable or not, so here's what I mean. So when I'm around my kids, a lot of the time it's just my normal voice, but I also have a dad voice that's reserved just for my kids. And my kids, it's like, it's a mixture of a goofy voice and then sometimes a strict voice. They don't want that dad voice ever, and I don't either. But I have kind of this goofy voice, if you heard it, you'd be like, oh, this is Anthony's dad voice. Okay, so a lot of you don't have kids, so you're not tracking with me. So let me say this. Do you have a voice you use with your grandparents? Okay, this might be a little bit more relatable, right? Like when I used to talk to my grandmother, I would kind of talk louder, Slower, right? This is maybe a little bit ageism on my part, but I would talk louder, slower, kind of like more proper, like I'd sound like the King James Bible, like "How art thou doing, grandmother?" Like I I just use these, like like I just talk to her differently, okay? And then if you saw me with my high school friends, uh, you you would be like, "This guy is straight out of Compton," all of a sudden, like that. Okay, you guys are from Flagstaff. I would sound like a rapper. Okay, that, that helps you out, understand. And so there's these different contexts where I change my voice or t- change how I speak, and, and I can already see you're judging me. You're going, he's fake, he's not genuine, he's different with different people. But this is what I've discovered over the last few years of being a pastor. You guys have a pastor voice that you use. When me and Vince hang out with you, you're like, oh yeah, like you're just saying all these. It's like you're only speaking in scripture. You're like you have like a softer tone. And then when I see you with your friends, you're just out there wilding, and you talk totally different than how you talk when you're with us. So one, you can talk to me and Vince like in a normal way, like. We might judge you, but that, like, that's part of the process, okay? And so we all have different voices that we use for different contexts. And some of them I would say, yeah, that's good, right? Like my grandmother, she probably wanted me to talk like that. Some of that is a loving thing to do. And why I bring all that up is when we look at Jesus in the scriptures, and we talked a little bit about this last week, Jesus engages people differently based on who they are. And that's not Jesus being unfair. That's actually Jesus loving people based uniquely on who they are. God knows each and, like, we would all agree, everybody is unique, right? Everybody, that's one of these things that we kind of all agree that Sesame Street taught us, right? And it's just true. Everybody is unique. And God loves us uniquely. And so in John, what we see a lot of times is Jesus treats people differently, talks to people differently, uses a different sort of voice depending on the person that he's talking to. And we're going to see that today. And we've seen that over the last few weeks. We saw when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, it was a little bit different than how he was talking to the woman at the well that we saw last week. And today, Jesus is going to be talking to an official of Herod's, and we're going to see that he talks even differently to him. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see how Jesus interacts with different people in different ways. And so we're going to go to this passage and this passage is at the end of chapter 4 and it's kind of sometimes treated I think even in my own heart as just this like innocuous passage. This passage that doesn't really matter. This passage that we just glossed over. It's a story about Jesus healing something. We're like, yeah, I've seen that. Been there, or whatever. Like we 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 just kind of pass over it especially because it's right after one of these greatest hits passages that we saw last week. The woman at the well we we all love the woman at the well I even said it's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture last week and so because of that we can gloss over this passage but as I was studying this passage it, there was a lot of stuff that 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 stood out to me and and I felt like God was speaking things to me and so this is what we're going to do today we're going to go through this passage at the end of chapter 4 of John And then, and as we're going through it, I'll give some light commentary so that we all understand what's happening in the passage. And then, there are three teachers that I see in the passage. Three teachers that want to teach us three different things that I see in the passage. The first teacher is Jesus. He will want to teach us something. He's our greatest teacher, and really, he's the only teacher, in a sense. Our second teacher is this official, this character, the official that we'll see in the passage. He inadvertently will teach us something. And then our third teacher is John, the author of the Gospel of John, the writer of, of the Gospel of John. He seems to want to teach us something in what he's writing, okay? So let's flip to John chapter 4. If you're not familiar with the, the Bible, it's broken up into two parts. There's an Old Testament that's the vast majority of the Bible, and then there's a New Testament that's a bit smaller. And the beginning of the New Testament starts with stories True stories about Jesus' life. I love the language Vince has been using the last few weeks, saying these Gospels and the the Gospel of John is like a documentary. True things about Jesus that John wants to point out. So we're going to be in John chapter 4, verse 43. We're just going to go through the passage together before we look at the three teachers that we have. So, verse 43 says this. After the two days, he, Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Okay, we saw this last week. We'll stop here for a second. We saw this last week. Jesus is very intentional about his ministry. There are a lot of theological reasons for that, and that's a sermon for another day, but Jesus sees, uh, really, the Pharisees see Jesus uh, and his disciples, really, baptizing all these people, and there's too much of the limelight on Jesus, and so he says, I got to get out of Judea and go to Galilee, so, so things calm down a bit, so the Pharisees aren't as focused uh, on me as, as I want them to be, and so so that they're less focused, really, and so He starts to head to Galilee. We saw he stopped in Samaria on the way. And so, again, John reminds us, hey, he's going into Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He's from this region. And Jesus' reasoning is simply, hey, listen, when people know where you used to go to the bathroom, they don't have as much respect for you and who you are and your t- that's just there 's a reality to that, right like you guys are a lot more impressed by uh, me and vince 's preaching than our families are well actually vince 's family 's like super encouraging, but more than my family, <laughs> and so love you, mom and dad um, and so uh, Jesus this is what he wants to do he wants to take and then it 's kind of a there 's a lot of irony in this passage, and we 'll see a lot of it, but some of the irony is. As Jesus gets into Galilee, there's this group of Galileans that welcome him. And you're like, this sounds contradictory. But John wants to make note that even though Jesus was going to go to Galilee to help things quiet down, there's still this kind of crew of people that are a bit fascinated by Jesus. And he's connecting them to the the people that were at the end of chapter 2, if you remember. There were all these people following Jesus around at the end of the feast. And it said that Jesus didn't trust himself to them. Because he knew what was going on in their heart. Okay, so we're going to kind of find out why he didn't trust himself to them today. Okay, so let's keep going. Jesus is really intentional. There's a, still a little crew here, even though things are getting quieter. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, let's stop for a second before we go through the rest of the story. This, just to clear things up, this is not the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. Okay, a lot of people, it sounds very similar, I've even seen some theologians talk about it as if it's the same story. Those stories are very different. The only similarity between this story and that story is there's some sort of a royal type official in it. They're totally different stories, okay? So this is not the centurion story. Part of why we know they're totally different stories is there's a specific word used for the official here in the Greek, and that word is like a king's servant, a king's official, works for the king. And so every Greek theologian that I saw that looked at this word closely, they said, hey, this meant that this guy worked for Herod. I don't know if you remember the Herods, it's kind of a complicated political history between Rome and the Herods, but essentially Herods were these somewhat Jewish kings over Israel that Rome used as kind of like governors and uh, over Israel in, the, in different parts of Israel. And so this, is, this guy, more than likely, based on the word that's being used, works for Herod. And if you know anything about the Bible and the New Testament and the Gospels in particular, Herod doesn't have great uh, standing with Jesus in a sense. Like he is not a big fan of Jesus. And even Jesus at one point calls Herod a fox. And not like good looking. Like he's devious. (laughs) So words change their meaning over time. Um, So. This official from Herod lives 25 miles away in Capernaum. He essentially walks uphill to find this guy that he's probably heard is some sort of a miracle worker that does these signs, this rabbi Jesus. And so he finds Jesus and he says, Can you heal? come come down to where I live and heal my son? And there's all these times where I think I have Jesus figured out. And, and we're going to see Jesus uses a different voice here. Jesus, there's all these times where I think I have Jesus figured out and I know how he would react in each and every situation and then I read the Bible and I realize he doesn't fit into the box I want him to fit into. That he loves so well and so specifically that sometimes how he loves is totally unexpected for me. Because then Jesus responds to him, unless you believe, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It sounds pretty cold, Jesus. This man has his son dying, and his response to him is, unless you you see the signs and wonders, you're you're not going to believe. Jesus doesn't always do what we expect him to do. Let's keep going. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes here. Verse 49 is where we left off. We'll read to the end of the passage here. The official said to him, after Jesus said, unless you see this, you're not going to believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All right. So, Jesus says, hey, unless you see signs, you won't believe. The, the official just responds, my son's dying. Come, da- come down to where I live. Heal my son. And Jesus just thinks up this kid's healing. He says, go, your son will live. The man begins to walk back down. It seems like he stops for the night because it's the next day when he sees his servants. And he's walking downhill to Capernaum. And he he probably doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know if his kid has been healed or not. And this is another moment of irony in the text. This guy had authority over Jesus. He had literal authority over Jesus. He worked for the king. He could tell people, come over here, and they should go over there. And yet Jesus doesn't listen to that command. Jesus actually gives him a command to go back over there. There's a lot of irony in this passage. So he goes down. On the way, the servants find him and say, listen, your your, your kid got healed. And he goes, when was it? It was yesterday, about one. And he's like, that's when I was talking to the rabbi. And they all begin to believe in Jesus. And believe in what he can do and who he is and who he says he is. It's a, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story. And I think there are, like I said, I think there are three teachers in this story. And again, this story can be so innocuous for us. But I think if we look at these three teachers, we can see that there's a lot that we can learn from this passage in Scripture. Okay, so the first teacher we have is Jesus. Jesus is our first and, and our greatest teacher. You might have noticed something interesting that happens in John 4:48. Uh, if you have the ESV, there's usually a footnote there. If you notice that "you there is plural in verse 48 of John 4:48, that "you there is plural." So when the man asks Jesus to heal his son, What Jesus is actually saying is a plural you, he's addressing everybody around him, this crowd of Galileans that welcomed him and who were seeking these signs at the feast and excited about Jesus that Jesus didn't quite trust. He's actually saying to the whole crowd. And so I want to reread that verse with uh, a plural you, which we all know a plural you is y'all, right? Okay? I didn't know Jesus was southern, but I guess he's southern, okay? To clarify, I don't think Jesus is southern, okay? I don't think that, all right? (laughs) He was born in Israel, to clarify. But he uses some, a, a word that's kind of like this southern word, y'all. So I'm going to reread that phrase so that we can maybe understand what Jesus is trying to teach us. Verse 48, halfway through. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. Right? It's, I can't. I'm not southern. Right? Vince, this is ministering to Vince. He's from the south. I, will, I like to say all y'all, unless all y'all will not see signs. So what is Jesus trying to teach us here in this passage? What's going on? Jesus wanted to teach the crowd something. This man comes up, asks for healing, and Jesus wants to teach them something. Here's, here's what we know. Jesus isn't saying, hey, well, unless you see a sign, uh, you're not going to believe. Again, this is another moment of irony because he does end up healing the son, Right? But does any of the crowd see it? No, only the Father. So this isn't a sign that that pops up for the crowd. Jesus does a sign, but they don't see it. There's a lot of irony in this passage. And so Jesus is not saying, well, unless you see this, you're going to be... He's actually rebuking them. He's almost exasperated, and he's going, gosh, unless you guys see signs and wonders, you you just don't believe. Unless you see signs and wonders you don't believe. So what is Jesus trying to teach us and the crowd by saying that? What he's trying to teach the crowd is, don't just be a sign seeker. Don't just be someone who's looking for the signs I can do and the wonders that I can do. Don't be a sign seeker only. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me around, follow me around for me. Stop using me. Don't just be a sign seeker. And 2,000 years later, we're like, yeah, get him, Jesus, right? Because you're like, no, we're not like that. This isn't a charismatic enough church. Like, like we're, we're not like, that's what, you, that's what you, you think. But I think that we can hear and learn from Jesus, too. I think Jesus wants to rebuke us as well. Remember, Jesus uses different voices for different situations. And so some of us, it is actually loving for Jesus to rebuke us. So how do we listen to this rebuke of Jesus? Where Jesus says, hey, just stop being a sign seeker. Here's how I think it manifests in, in our sort of a church, in our people. I think there's a whole bunch of us here in this room trying to be around Jesus or the Bible, or church because of what we think Jesus or the Bible or the church can give us something. We think that they can give us either maybe a really good spouse or really moral kids or even just this encouraging feeling of the presence of god or or blessings from god and life will go better for me if i make sure i go to church and or 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 all sorts of things or more friends whatever it might be a lot of us are in here in this room because we have these different things we want and we think jesus or the bible or christians or the church can give us those things and that is the sole reason that we're here I think Jesus would rebuke that. It's not wrong to want those things, but I think what Jesus would say is if that's what you want most, and that's why you're around me, you're using me. You're using me for your own gain, you're using me for what you want, and you're missing the point. When we say all of life is all for Jesus, we mean it. We think Jesus is real. And so if we listen to Jesus' rebuke of the crowd correctly, we can analyze our hearts, analyze our actions to go, am I using God to just get the things I like in this world? And Jesus would say, don't just be here for my signs and my wonders. Be here for me. Right? Think about how ridiculous it is that people, us and 2,000 years ago, were following Jesus around just because of what he could do when he was God in the flesh. They ha- like, we, we use Jesus sometimes. We use him to get what we want, and Jesus wants to rebuke that. So right now, you might be feeling discouraged. You're like, man, this is not a very encouraging sermon. I don't apologize. But what do I do, Anthony? If I'm using Jesus, if I'm here for all the wrong reasons, what do I do? Should I just leave? Should I not do this? No. Be here for the right reasons instead. Right? If you ever have any depth of relationship with any person... There will be a time where, that, where someone will say, hey, I feel like this is going on in our relationship and I think it should change. And even if you're, if you're anything like me, you know that you've accidentally used people at times and they might bring it up. And your response when someone says, hey, I feel like I'm being used by you, your response shouldn't be, well, let's not be friends anymore. I'm going to go away. Your response should be, man, I'm going to stop using you. I'm going to start being in a genuine relationship with you. I'm going to love you for you, not for what you can do for me. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. He's saying, stop using me. Be here for me. Follow me. Get to know me. Church, that's what Jesus is teaching us. Let him rebuke us and let it be for our good. All right. Second teacher in the passage. Second teacher in the passage is the official... Like I said earlier, the the official, he inadvertently teaches us something. I I don't think he's meaning to teach us something, but he teaches us something. And this is what he teaches us. It's, It's really easy. You can go to God with your desperation. In fact, you should go to God in your desperation. One of my hopes as a pastor in this church is simply this. I just want to deepen your relationship with the Lord. I want to deepen it. A lot of us have very surface level relationship with God. We're, we're, we're trying, but it's just not very deep. And what, the, what God's word invites us into is a in-depth relationship with God. And I think one of the ways we could deepen our relationship with God is if we went to him in the midst of our desperation. When we felt desperate that we would go to him with our desperation think about how desperate this official was we talked about it a little bit he's walking uphill 25 miles listen there is not a lot of things I would do I I would not there's not a lot of things I would want that would make me walk up a hill one mile uphill like that like no you can ask my wife she's always trying to go on hikes and I'm like no I'm good right And I've I've changed that over the years because Jesus rebukes me. Um, There's not a lot. This man is so desperate. His son is near death. He's willing to walk uphill to find a guy he's just heard about probably. He just knows Jesus' name. He knows the kind of work he's doing. He knows he probably looks like a rabbi, and he just decides to go up. Think about how desperate he was. Think about how that conversation with his wife must have gone. He goes to his wife, I'm gonna go try to find this miracle worker guy. And his wife probably going, You're gonna be gone when our son potentially dies? And he's just like, I don't know what else to do. And so he decides, and we find out he actually has servants. He could have found, sent a bunch of servants to go look for, for Jesus, but this shows his desperation. He's so desperate that he's like, No, I, I can't delegate this task. I've got to do it. I've got to talk to the miracle worker, I've got to talk to the man. This guy is full of desperation and what he teaches us is that we can go to Jesus with our desperation because as the man approaches Jesus desperate, Jesus takes the moment to disciple him and the rest of the crowd about their hard hearts that want to use Jesus and yet the man is still desperate for his son to live. Did you notice that? Jesus says this rebuke and it doesn't deter the man. The man goes, yeah, okay, I don't know, like, I don't know about all that. I just just come down and heal my son. And something about that, I think, compels Jesus. Hear me, that doesn't mean every time we go to God desperately, He'll do what we want. but there, in this moment, there's just something about this Father's love for his son that compels Jesus, and he heals the Son, not because of what the official did but because Jesus is good and loving. And so this official teaches us that we should go to God in our desperation. And so church, this is what, just what I, I want to encourage us in this week. When you feel desperate, go to Jesus. How do I go to Jesus? In prayer. The second you start talking to Jesus, you're going to Jesus in one sense. With, anytime you feel desperate, go to him. I think in our culture... We feel desperate a lot, and we go to a hundred different things. Whether it's food, or some pleasure, or some sin, we go to all these different things in order to make our desperation go away. And what the official teaches us is that the best place to take our desperation is Jesus, is at his feet. Church, let us be deepened. Some of us, that's all the only time we go to Jesus, so there's other ways that we need to deepen our relationship with God, but let our relationship with God deepen by going to Him in desperation. Think about ways you can begin to do that this week. All right, first two teachers down. The third teacher, the third teacher is John, the author of this book. He does something really interesting in this passage. If you if you notice it, and if you look at it, and I think it shows us what John's trying to teach us. He, he really connects this really quick story about a healing to this kind of like what we sometimes rank as like this big deal miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine, right? He says that this miracle happened on the third day, just like the water into wine happened on the third day. Uh, he, said that this happened, that he said this happened in Cana where Jesus did this. He said this is the second sign in Cana, the other one was the first sign. So John wants us to think that these things are connected, and he wants to teach us something about Jesus that's important for us to get. I'm going to read this. Actually, I'm I'm not going to read that yet. The first sign that Jesus did was the, the water and the new wine. And we learn all sorts of things about Jesus. That one day, he, that he is starting to inaugurate this, this wedding feast that will come in its fullness one day. And that Jesus' new covenant, the new sort of relationship that God is going to have with all people that believe in Jesus. It's, it's going to be like new wine. It's going to be better than anything it could have ever been. That's a lot of what we learned in the first sign. So what are we learning in the second sign? What is John trying to point us to? I'm going to read this. John chapter 20, 30, and 31. We've read it, I think, a few times now because John just explicitly states why he wrote this gospel. Listen closely because I forgot to put it on the screen. It says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe... That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What John wants to teach us is the sort of reality that Jesus is bringing is one where people get life. Where people get resurrection. Think of the story, it's a boy headed towards death and Jesus defeats death. Saves the boy, so the boy heads towards life and resurrection. John wants us to know that Jesus and following Jesus, believing in Jesus, brings us life, brings us resurrection. Think of the last few stories in John already. This is a huge theme of the last few stories. Uh, Nicodemus, born again, new life. John the Baptist talks about everlasting life. The woman at the well, Jesus wants to give her living, eternal water. And now John says this is the second sign where Jesus raises a son back to life. Jesus and John wants you to know that in this world of death, there is someone that could defeat it. In this world of death and pain, there is someone who has come, who is beginning the process where he has defeated it in some mysterious way and one day will defeat it completely. For those of you that have experienced sickness and death, that's amazing news. You're like, there's someone that can take away the most painful parts of my life. There's someone that can give me resurrection. There's someone that can give me life. I want that. And if the resurrection, if life is not that big of a deal to you, it's probably because you're too young or you've been lucky. And you haven't experienced too much sickness and death in your life. But what Jesus offers us is a resurrected life. I, I... I admittedly, I had trouble with this point because I, I really thought this was a point John was trying to make. And why I'm saying I had trouble with it is because I think the resurrection is not a big enough deal to me. I think I don't live under a resurrection mindset. I, don't, I think I don't live under a mindset that Jesus wants to give me life. Like, think of what John said. He goes, I want you to believe in Jesus so that you might have life. Right? Sometimes we go, uh, we, we want you to believe in Jesus so that you may have really good theology or be a really good person or do really good things. But what John says is, I want you to believe in Jesus so that you have life, so that you have resurrection. And I just realized, I live too much in a death mindset. I think all of our world kind of lives in a death mindset. Death seems like one of the most, like, Biggest realities. One of the most sure things. And I think too much as Christians, we find ourselves in this death mindset. Here's what I mean. A lot of the ways that we live, a lot of the things that we seek, a lot of the things that we do, even a lot of the ways that, that we exist as people are because we know death is coming. Here, I, I broke it up into thirds. I think kind of third death Uh, There's probably more than this. A third of us in the room each probably believe in some sort of death mindset like this. The first third of the room, I think, the the way that the death mindset affects you is you go, I gotta live as long as possible. That's my goal. I gotta get as much life in me so that because one day I'm gonna die, and that's gonna be it. And you go, well, I'm a Christian. Yes, there's resurrection. But then, but this this really. Like, is how you live in the world. I got it? It's not bad to want to live long. It's not bad to want to be healthy. But if this is all you live for, I think you might have a death mindset. I've been watching a lot of that Zach Efron show on Netflix. I don't know what. He just, like, goes and be healthy in places. Right? I don't know. I'm like, cool, dude. Give me a few million. <laughs> I, could, I could get yoked, too. But maybe not. But... But they're just like, these two guys are going to these different places. And some of the stuff they're, they're looking at is really cool stuff. But, but they're just obsessed, it feels like, with living forever. Okay. Murderer is coming. <laughs> I think that's how, isn't that in Phantom of the Opera? I don't know what, okay. Um, I have a death mindset because I just thought I was about to die, see? okay. So they just, they want to live. And so I think a third of us in the room, that's like our goal. We just want to live as long as possible. That's like, that's the biggest thing. I think it's a little bit living with a death mindset if it's unhealthy. I think another third of you live like this. I fall into this category, I think, too often. Uh, you kind of live like Drake and George Strait who say, hey, I'm here for a good time, not a long time, okay? Some of you, that's your mindset. You're, you're like, hey, I got to get as much happiness, pleasure, joy in each and every moment that I don't really care about what happens down the line because I know I'm here for a good time, not a long time. I want to have as much goodness as I can before the badness comes. That's a death mindset. I think another third of you, you've seen the pitfalls of both of those and then you're just kind of like depressed by society and you're just like, what's the point, right? One of my like, happiest friends, she just posted on her Instagram, she goes, I think one of my biggest fears, I, I just, I'm just like, what's the point? Like, why, why do this? I think all of these things are death mindsets. Which makes sense. Because there's a lot of death in our world. But what John wants to teach us, what John wants to show us, is that with Jesus, you can have a resurrection mindset. With Jesus, you can have life. And a resurrection mindset will cause us to live differently in this world. Not recklessly, Okay? I've seen some people taking the resurrection mindset and beginning to live recklessly lately. Not like that. But a resurrection mindset, a mindset that says I have life in Christ and life eternal changes how you exist in this world. You begin to know what really matters. You begin to be able to hope when things seem hopeless. It just absolutely changes how you exist in this world. And this is something that Jesus wants to give us. He wants to say, hey, I have life for you. I have resurrection for you. This is what I want for you. That's what John wants to teach us. That's what Jesus has for us. Think of all the ways that Jesus used his life in order to bring us life. Like Jesus himself took on a human life to show us what true life should look like. Jesus went to the cross, gave up his life so that our lives did not have to be taken for our sins. Jesus came back to life showing that he's defeated death and sin in order to give us resurrected life that can only be found in him. Jesus used up all of his life in order to give us life. And Jesus is far bigger than death, so death didn't win. He conquered death. And not just in a way that says, well, since I conquered death, now you should listen to me. He just says, since I conquered death, I want you to have life. Since I conquered death, since I came back to life, I want you to believe in me, trust in me, and you have life in my name, as John says. Church, how radically would we change if we began to have a life mindset, if we began to realize that Jesus gives us resurrection? I think that's what John wants us to notice here. In the passage, I think three times it says your son will live, or something along those lines, your son will live. John so clearly wants us to teach us about the resurrection where God's son lived for us. Here's what I know about teaching about this kind of stuff, this resurrection healing and passages like this. It can be hard for some of us in the room. Because you've experienced a, a chronic illness or you know someone that has a chronic illness or you have someone in your life who is headed towards death. And you go, Anthony, I've gone desperately to God. And God hasn't done anything. And we want to sit with you in that pain. We want to cry with you in that pain. I encourage you, go to your friends, go to your Christian community and begin to feel that pain together. And Christian community, be good about that. Be loving about that. Love them uniquely and specifically in that pain. But the resurrection tells us It's not a matter of if God will heal us one day, but when will God heal us? We really believe Jesus is going to come back. I thought it was going to happen a few minutes ago. We really believe Jesus is literally going to come back one day. And on that day, we get resurrection. On that day, we get life. And that should change how we live right now. That should allow us to hear the rebuke from Jesus if we're just sign seekers. That should help us to see that we can go to Jesus with every desperation we have and leave, leave whatever, his, whatever his plans are in his hands. And it should just help us to become more hopeful that we have life and resurrection in his name. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, thank you for your life. Father, thank you for your son's life. God, help us to be a people that are willing to be rebuked by you. God, I really, I just don't think we're good at that. I think we're really bad at being rebuked, God. I think we've all, like if I'm honest, God, with so many of us, we've just made up our minds about everything. We think we're the smartest in the room, any room we're in, and God, I'm... I I lament that as a pastor, but I lament that as I'm stuck with myself all the time and I see how I exist in that. And so God, help me to be rebuked by you in all the ways I need to be rebuked. And so God, if I use you, help me to repent and turn from that. God, help me to go to you in desperation. So often, God, we don't go to you in desperation. We go to a hundred other things in desperation. God, I ask that you make us a people that always go to you in our desperation and in every sort of feeling, but in desperation in particular, if that's not where we're going. Finally, God, make the resurrection even more real to us. Make the fact that you want us to have life in your name even more real. Help us to believe in that, hope in that, live as if that's true, because I know it's true but God, I don't always live that way. And for those, God, that that's particularly painful, I just ask that you would comfort them and help them to know how much you love them and how resurrection is coming one day. That fullness of life is coming one day, and in some mysterious way, we have it already, God. God, help us. We need you. We love you. Amen.